Children's Church, they can head back now and join him. They'll be back at the final hymn. But we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19. So if you can turn there in your Bibles or on your phones, Acts chapter 19, verse 1. This will be page 928. If you're using uh, the Bibles here at Covenant under the seats in front of you, page 928. We're continuing here with our study in the book of Acts, now launching in on Paul's third missionary journey. So you're seeing he's very significant to the spread of the early church. Acts chapter 19, we'll read verses 1 to 22 today. But if you're all there, I'd like to begin with prayer. Ask the Lord to bless our reading of his word. So let's pray. Dear Father, we do ask that you bless this time together, that your hand would be upon us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to listen carefully with open minds, open hearts, willing to be taught from your word, recognizing that, Lord, as our God, you will often confront us, our wrong understandings of the world, of you, of our sin. And we welcome that, Lord, and pray for grace uh, to accept that confrontation. And Lord, that you'd remind us of your gospel, which is powerful and which keeps us from despair. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord. 
the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So in this text, we, we enter into one of Paul's most fruitful periods of ministry, uh, there will be a counterattack by the devil. We'll see that in the next section. But for about three years, all told, Paul carries on this aggressive ministry in Ephesus that verse 10 tells us reached the entire province of Asia. Uh, so we're not talking about just planting uh, the church in Ephesus here, but rather probably churches... Uh, either directly or through helpers, people that he was training in Ephesus, throughout the entire province of Asia, a very large province. Um, Bill mentioned earlier Colossae, a church he probably planted at this time through Epaphras, and also probably the, the seven churches, or at least many of the seven churches we see in the beginning of Revelation were probably planted around this time by Paul or people that he trained to plant these churches, and, and probably many more churches, given what we read there in verse 10. The importance of the Apostle Paul to the beginning of the early church is probably becoming more and more important as we look, as we study through these chapters in the book of Acts. Uh, and if he's so important, we need to be very clear that the gospel he taught was the true good news that we and the world need. And see, I think that this is exactly what this text here in Acts is doing for us. It is proving to us that this good news that Paul taught was one, the fulfillment of all the past good news that Paul had, that, sorry, that God had given his people over the years. God gave these different messages, promises. Paul is bringing the fulfillment of that good news. Secondly, this good news is, is more powerful than the good news that the world has. And thirdly, it is, in fact, the only true good news. And, of course, at the center of this good news is the name of Jesus Christ. 
You can see that uh, a couple times in this text, the name of Jesus Christ repeats. And so, uh, like Paul and the, the people of Ephesus here, we want to be drawn this morning also to extol the name of Jesus. So we'll begin by looking at how Paul's gospel was the fulfillment of past gospels. Uh, so my first point, the fulfillment of the past. Last summer, I got to share the good news with, briefly, with a Jewish man on the boardwalk in Wildwood. Covenant Church sends a, a group of people on a missions trip to Wildwood every other summer for evangelism training. And I remember this conversation being one of the sadder conversations I've had because here's a man who believes, you know, these Old Testament books full of anticipation and longing and uh, all these stories, right, of need that are laid out throughout the Old Testament, all these promises God will provide. And yet, he refuses to believe in the Messiah, that he did come, that God did provide. He's like someone with terminal cancer, promised a cure, but rejecting it when it comes. Maybe because it was offered to other people too. Maybe because it, it didn't seem like what he was expecting. Maybe he never believed the cure would actually be provided in the first place. Paul mentions some people like this in verse 9 people who become stubborn and continue in unbelief uh, even after three months of Paul teaching uh, and seeking to persuade them in the synagogue there in Ephesus. And so Paul moves on from them. Uh, these Jews in Ephesus, they're like people living on a sinking island, right? They're promised a rescue boat, but when the boat finally comes... They don't believe it can save. And so the boat finally moves on without them. In verse 9, Paul moves on. He leaves the synagogue, and he begins teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. Uh, we don't know really much about Tyrannus except for his interesting name, but probably Tyrannus was some sort of teacher or a philosopher maybe there in Ephesus. He's got a hall, and he is willing to rent it to Paul during the afternoon hours, likely, when he wasn't using it. So, you know, Paul's typical schedule would be something like, you know, he makes tents from 7 to 11 in the morning. Uh, then he lectures in the hall from 11 to 4 p.m. Those are sort of the hottest hours of the day. And so back then, the laborers would have off in those hours from 11 to 4. They'd be off to take a nap or do whatever they want. So it's a perfect time to speak to people, except, of course, for the heat. Uh, so then after that, Paul would continue making tents from about 4 to 9.30 p.m., six days a week. It's an aggressive schedule there in Ephesus, but you can understand how he was able to reach an entire province of people. Uh, sharing the gospel takes work and consistency. We do see that in Paul's life. But, of course, there's also these disciples in the beginning of Paul's uh, time in Ephesus that he runs into. And they don't even seem to realize that the rescue boat has arrived. Paul must have noticed something was not quite right about them because he asks them this question. Verse two, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, we haven't even heard there is 
a Holy Spirit. Now, this probably doesn't mean that they didn't know the Holy Spirit exists. That is a possible meaning of the verb here, but there are plenty of references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So even if they didn't understand all the details of the Trinity, they should know at least that somebody called the Holy Spirit exists. And even John the Baptist, who they seem to be some sort of disciples of, uh, he taught about the Holy Spirit. He taught that when the Messiah came, this Messiah that John was preparing the way for, when this Messiah came, he would bring the Holy Spirit, and then he would baptize people with him. So, likely, this doesn't mean they didn't know the Holy Spirit exists, but they didn't know he was here. He, they didn't know he, he was available yet. He was provided yet. They didn't know he had come, and so likewise, they didn't know the Messiah had come. They were seriously behind much more than Apollos from last week. If you were here last week, we looked at Apollos who also knew the baptism of John. But remember, he was also able to accurately teach about Jesus. He knew about Jesus and the salvation that comes through him. Whereas these guys, they don't seem to know anything about Jesus. They're stuck in the past. They're not even, not even knowing that, that all that John taught has been fulfilled as Paul goes on to reveal to them they you know they sort of represent that incomplete stage in God's plan where John was preparing the way for Jesus notice verse 7 says there's 12 about 12 of them, right? That's sort of a, there's sort of a representative feel to that number. You'll remember that Jesus had 12 disciples. There are 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. And then, you know, the Holy Spirit comes on them almost like this mini sort of Pentecost event, like what we saw when the fullness of the gospel came to the disciples in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Or when the fullness of the gospel came to the Samaritans in Acts 8. Again, a mini Pentecost. Or when it came to the Gentiles in Acts 10. Now, the fullness of the gospel comes to these disciples of John the Baptist who were sort of left behind back, hadn't even heard about the coming of the Messiah. All these things are signaling the end of an older Message, an older good news that has been fulfilled with what Paul is teaching. And so, what we're seeing here is that Paul's gospel is legit. It was the gospel that fulfilled everything that John the Baptist taught. It's not something different, it's not something new. It is the next step in God's plan to save his people through his son, Jesus. I think. A practical application of this whole discussion between uh, Paul and these disciples, you know, is if, if someone says they're a Christian, but something seems a bit off, we need to have the guts to ask a few probing questions. They may be missing some of the crucial facts of the gospel, and maybe all they need is someone to share it with them. This is what we do when the elders interview someone to become a member here at Covenant Church. We ask them, you know, what it means to be a Christian. And then, depending on how they answer, we may have a few more questions to, to see that they actually understand the basics of the gospel. 
We don't do this to be mean. We do this out of love for them. And I know that in today's world, people do not like having their faith probed. Uh, They just want you to accept that they're a Christian. Enough said. But what if they're not? Will you let them live in their ignorance? That's not the love we see in the questions of Jesus or the example of Paul here. Could you give a simple definition of the gospel if you were asked? Paul tells the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. I'm not encouraging you to live in doubt. If you understand the gospel, you don't need to live in doubt. But if you don't understand the gospel, pursue it. Gospel means good news. Make sure you know the good news that the Lord offers. Secondly, we see here that the gospel that Paul is teaching is stronger than the world's gospel. So my second point, stronger than the world's gospel. In verses 11 to 17, God authenticates the gospel that Paul is teaching in a powerful way, okay? All these miracles that even for that day were considered extraordinary. I mean, right, miracles are by definition uh, not normal. That's just sort of what a miracle is. It is not normal. But Luke indicates the miracles that were happening here are even beyond the norm for something that's already abnormal. He calls them extraordinary in verse 11. So, you know, if you read these miracles, you're like, whoa, this is, this is next level. This is a little bit unbelievable. Luke agrees with you. He thinks they're true, but they are not typical. They are abnormal. But see, the role that miracles played in the days of the early church were not just to impress people. It was to authenticate those people who spoke for God. They were like giant flashing signs saying, listen to this person. Uh, You remember Jesus, uh, he healed a lady who simply touched his robe at one point. Uh, Or maybe you remember back earlier in Acts, people trying to like stand in Peter's shadow. And now we've got people taken off with Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons. I mean, Paul might have gotten actually a little bit annoyed with people swiping his stuff all the time. The word handkerchief here, the meaning of the Greek word is sweat rag, right? So maybe a better translation would be like a headband or something. These, these are the rags he was using. He's making his tents in the morning. He's lecturing in the afternoons and wipe the sweat off. Someone would take off with his sweat rag. And uh, he's, it's clear He's not the one doing the miracles here. He's, he's probably like, God, I'm running out of sweat rags. God is doing it. And what is God proving by doing this? Proving by doing these things through Paul. He's saying, just like with Peter, just like with Jesus, these people speak for me. He's authenticating their message, the message we now have right here. But he does it here in Ephesus in such a kind way. Consider, 
right? How do you prove to someone that your idea is better than yours, than theirs, sorry. Your idea is better than theirs. You, you, you enter their world, you express your idea in a language they understand, and then once they can relate to what you're saying, right, then you distinguish your idea from theirs, and you show that yours is a better answer. This is how God interacts with his people. He relates to us. He shows us he can understand us, our emotions, our suffering, our struggles. But then he distinguishes himself, right? Uh, Jesus came to earth. He covered himself in our weak flesh. He experienced our death. But then he distinguished himself by defeating death and ascending up into glory to heaven to show that his answer is much better than the world's. His good news is far stronger than what they have. In, in God's kindness, he follows this same pattern here in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city filled with superstition. Uh, we talked about this during our series on the book of Ephesians last summer. Uh, magical power, sacred talismans, books of spells, controlling spiritual powers. People were obsessed with this stuff in Ephesus. And God speaks their language when he starts doing these miracles through Paul. And so along come these seven sons of a Jewish high priest, and they think to themselves, oh, look, there's a powerful name we can add to our list. But here's where Jesus Christ distinguishes himself from the other magical answers found in the city of Ephesus because he does not allow himself to be manipulated in that manner. Now, there's this dramatic scene where the sons, all seven of them, are overpowered by this one demon-possessed man, and they run out of the house naked and wounded. Why are they naked? This man must have been ripping at them tearing at them like an animal. And it's this whole event, more than any, any of the miracles, right, that make people sit up and notice. Power they knew. That's a language they speak. They understand power, but power that can't be controlled, that's different. They could not just add this God to their pantheon of gods and goddesses. You can't just take his name and add it to the list of names that you call out to you when you try whenever you're in a problem. You didn't take his name lightly on your lips at all. Is this the honor you have for the name of Jesus? Do you regard his gospel as a strong message distinct from the messages of other religions and philosophies in this world. We read that fear fell upon all the inhabitants of the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled because it was found to be both strong and distinct, different from all the good news that they had. 
We should, we should glory in the ways that God, he accommodates to our world. He helps us understand him, know him, but we must also distinguish him and his gospel from all the other gospel messages of this world. They are created by man. They are weak. Some of them are lies. They're twisted truth. And when they replace the true gospel, they lead people terribly astray. And in fact, as we turn to these final verses, we see here that not only is this gospel strong, it is the only true gospel. So my third point, the only true gospel. Verse 18 and following, we read that even many people who were already Christians were strongly affected by this whole event with the sons of Sceva. They had not yet grasped what Jesus taught in Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. They had not grasped this yet. They wanted to follow Jesus. They liked the strength of his gospel. But they weren't yet so committed that they had abandoned other ways of gaining power, other ways of looking for hope in the world. It appears that many of them still sort of practice these magic arts on the side as if they could kind of get the best of both worlds. You know, if this Jesus guy works out, good. I mean, I like the community of other Christians. The stories about him are pretty amazing. He healed my grandma. But, you know, I can always fall back on my magical arts if I need to. But now as they see these sons of Sceva who tried to treat Jesus as an add-on to their religion, be themselves exercised from the building by the demon they tried to defeat, they're realizing Jesus can't be treated this way. His gospel is not like an expansion pack for your life, you know, add a couple power additions to what you got going on there already. You can't you can't do that. You can't just add it on to everything you're already believing. It transforms everything. Jesus does not stand among the gods and idols of the world. His good news is not one of many possible options. He demands an exclusive relationship, and he claims to have the only good news. Maybe magical arts aren't the worldly good news you pursue. Maybe personal mastery at what you think you're good at, your job, your ambition. Maybe wealth, maybe influence over people or structures. Pursue excellence, that's fine, but don't make those things your gospel. They can only be good for you when you do them for Jesus and his gospel. And so these believers come confessing Repenting of their double-minded lives, their conflicted hearts. They take up their objects of idolatry. They destroy them. We're told the value came to 50,000 pieces of silver. It's about $6 million in today's currency. This was not a small sacrifice. It was not a small movement. What worldly gospels are you holding on to? The gospel of the good American life. The gospel of the political solution for everything. The gospel of science and technology will solve 
all our problems. The gospel of small town community. The gospel of personal freedom. The gospel of a local church that will supply all your needs. I hope we've disabused you of that gospel here at Covenant. The only true gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God proves in this passage that Paul was an authoritative teacher of that gospel. It is the gospel of sinful humans, a just but gracious God, and his only redeemer, Jesus Christ. That's the basics. There's more, uh, there's more to this gospel. It impacts every area of our life. It must control every area of our life, but it cannot be added on to the other good news substitutes of this world. What idols in your life need to be burned? I can think of some in my life. If Jesus is a great savior, if you want to see him praised, lifted up, extolled as he ought to be, as he was here in Ephesus, what better way than to cast off all the pretenders and recognize him alone as the king of our lives? The good news of which he is the center is the fulfillment of all the good news given to God's people in the past. This gospel is stronger than any of the good news that the world offers, and it is the only true gospel. Every other worldly substitute still ends in death. Only Jesus defeated death. That's history. It's not myth. It's not legend. Those believers in Ephesus who burned their books, they could still in their day, interview hundreds of people who saw the risen Christ. Christian, the gospel of Jesus Christ is your good news. Own it, claim it, and praise Jesus for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have it as the fulfillment of all the promises, the stories, the hopes, the longings of your people for centuries. We thank you, O Lord, that your gospel is strong, that we have a Savior who saves us from sin, Lord, and there is no depths to which we can fall, Lord, that you cannot call us back and redeem us from. We praise you, O Lord, that it is the only true gospel. We pray that we turn away from the worldly substitutes that we can sometimes begin to follow, we can sometimes add on to our lives, hoping, living for worldly substitutes. We ought to follow our Savior alone. Lord, we pray that as your people, we would claim this gospel, be proud of it, own it and praise our Savior daily as we remember his salvation and the goodness that he gives us now and forevermore. We pray this in his name. Amen.